0: And we're off! Oh, we are off! How you doing, Nick? We're, I'm uh, I'm good, man. I've just been hanging out and living it living at home and working at home and doing doing drinking at home. A lot of home. A lot of home. You? You, uh, Zach?
1: I'm doing okay. I I got uh, some extra Taco Bell rumbling around in my stomach, which is
0: making things a little uncomfortable right now. But I got Wendy's delivered today. How was it? Well, when you get Wendy's delivery, all you can really eat is the burgers. Fries don't transport well. Frosties don't transport well. But the burgers transport fine. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I just ate a couple burgers. I was like sitting there at at work and I was on a Zoom call and I was just eating tiny cheeseburgers. (laughs) Because I get the junior, the junior cheeseburger.
1: It's a good burger.
0: Yeah, I'm eight years old. I don't
1: think there's a Wendy's anywhere near me.
0: There isn't one near me either, which is why I got it for delivery on Uber Uber Eats. This episode is sponsored by Wendy's.
1: And Uber Eats.
0: Yeah. It's not, though. No.
1: No, it's sponsored by, uh, mine is sponsored by the V8 Diet Energy Drinks. That has been, like, my new, it replaced, like, Monsters, it replaced Red Bulls, it's kind of replaced coffee for me. Have you ever tried these? No. They come in the tiny little cans. It's, don't think like V8, like tomato juice. This is closer to like almost an Arizona.
0: Huh. I don't know. I don't, I don't know how I feel about this. I don't know if I trust it.
1: 10 calories a can. They're small, but they're like good flavors. It's like I got strawberry lemonade. That's what I'm drinking right now. And it's delicious. I don't think that I'm drinking vegetables or anything, but it's a black tea base. So it's got as much caffeine as a cup of coffee.
0: Well, strawberries and lemons are both fruit. Yeah. I'm just clarifying that I know what fruits are.
1: Oh, I, I was going to say V8 is tomato-based. Tomato is technically a fruit.
0: That's true. But what's the V for? There are eight vegetables in it.
1: I, I feel like maybe, isn't tomato kind of like the moon where we go back and forth on weather, or not the moon, Pluto, where we go back and forth, science is like, maybe it is, maybe it isn't.
0: I I wasn't a vegetable identification major in college, so uh, I don't I don't have that kind of um, uh, knowledge base. I could make some calls though.
1: Good to know. Um, what do you say yeah. we talk about uh, a director today?
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably the move. Welcome to a career in film.
1: <laughs> a <laughs> career in film. A podcast where every week uh, we pick a movie we really love and then. We take that director and do a deep dive in their filmography. Find out if there are any hidden gems in there. Find out if there's some trash that should be forgotten through history.
0: See what's up with the guy. What what was that movie today? Well, this
1: is a guy that has like a couple, I would say, medium hits that I really like. Um, But for me, that movie is Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. It is not his most famous by any means. Honestly, this is a man that is not as famous for directing as he is for other things. Um, But let's talk about Frank Oz.
0: Yeah, I'll clarify. I watched Dirty Rotten Scoundrels for the first time last year. I was very late to the Dirty Rotten Scoundrels party. I had meant to watch it for well over a decade and I just never got around to it. Then I watched it. It's good. We'll talk about it when we get there. But yeah, Frank Oz. By the way, I'm Nick Doriso. Oh, and I'm Zach D'Antonio just trying to i'm trying to remember the things we do we we don't normally bullshit about fast food for 10 minutes before we start talking movies so i'm just trying to
1: i don't care i'm keeping it in people need to know how we're eating
0: yeah no for sure um Um, so yeah so frank frank oz
1: yeah frank oz uh everyone probably knows the name frank oz he's like the second most famous puppeteer in the world Maybe you can make an yeah. argument that he's third. I'm sure 46% of Americans would say Jeff Dunham. But really, it's Jim Henson and Frank Oz are the two.
0: What about that dude What about that dude who played Elmo? I, I
1: still think he's under Oz. I mean, Oz was Miss Piggy. I think it's Kermit, Miss Piggy, Elmo. Yeah, okay. All right. But yeah, so Frank Oz, uh, he's a puppeteer. You know him from The Muppets. You know him from Sesame Street. You know him from tons of other things. His work with Jim Henson is... Uh, foundational for all children. Uh, honestly, it's very sad that more children don't watch The Muppets. It's, it's kind of a little bit hard to get right now.
0: You know what? Also, you might know him from is his cameo in The Blues Brothers. A wonderful cameo.
1: Well, I was going to say, you might also know him from his other ridiculously famous role in a little film called Star Wars.
0: Yeah? Yeah, you Who know. Who was he in Star Wars? Uh, Yoda. Oh, oh yeah, that's pretty pretty notable yeah yeah I, so the man
1: as a puppeteer and a voice actor has had a prolific career he has acted normally generally in smaller parts and stuff but he has had the, an acting career
0: in the blues brothers where he's the guy who hands jake his stuff back from prison i feel
1: like he's done a couple other like random cameos in other directors films
0: i mean i'm sure he has but that scene of him him handing back the 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 black suit and the used condom is a fantastic scene, and that's all Frank Oz. Yeah, should we talk to him? Uh, honestly, we can kind of
1: skip past. Uh, just warning already at the top, like we're not gonna talk a ton about his work as a puppeteer because we want to focus on his career as a director today. The man has written, engineered, um, acted, directed. He's literally done everything and worked in almost every different facet of film because of the nature of his collaboration with Jim Henson and the career that he has built upon it. But sticking with directing, we have, I think, like 12 titles to go through today. The 12 titles, not counting those documentaries at the end. Which we can talk about. But yeah, so we're going to be focusing on that. So
0: Um, be prepared.
1: There's not going to be a ton of Muppet talk.
0: All right. Well, well, actually, there is a little for the first three, because the first three are very puppetry-based films. He got his career jump-started off as a director by directing what he knew. Um, And that's the the first three films, which are... uh, The first two are Jim Henson Productions. I do not believe the third one is... It
1: was not, for sure.
0: Yeah. But at the same time, it's, you know, he's stuck in the puppetry world as a director to start off. Um, So... Yeah. Well, do you want to do you want to talk about his background as a human at all, other than that rant we just did about him being in the Blues Brothers and shit? Yeah. Here
1: are the highlights. Um, he was born in England, uh, but he's lived in Oakland, California, for most of his life. Um, his father and mother were actually uh, in the Dutch Brigade fighting the Nazis, so that's kind of cool. But yeah, uh, yeah, after the war, he moved to America, grew up in America. He got his work with Jim Henson, and that kind of spawned his career particularly into the first film which he co-directed with Jim Henson, that is 1982's The Dark Crystal.
0: Yeah, he, he was Jim Henson's right-hand man, and The Dark Crystal is a movie that they made together. It's also probably... So Like, there's obviously a certain cult following around a lot of Jim Henson's work, and The Dark Crystal, I, I think there's a fair argument to be made that it's probably... The cultiest? Yeah. Like, maybe Labyrinth? But, like, is there anything that's cultier than the Dark Crystal? I think the fact that the Crystal Labyrinth? got
1: a limited Netflix series, what, 30 years later makes it the most culty.
0: Yeah. Um Which, don't get me wrong, I'd watch a Labyrinth Netflix original, probably not anymore without Bowie, but... Um, but Dark Crystal is, is definitely has this strong cult following... Um, do you have a, a breakdown of the story?
1: Um, I, I don't. I can kind of pull one out. So I, I watched The Dark Crystal a couple months ago. It was like, right, they had a great Jim Henson exhibit at the uh, Museum of the Moving Image. And there was a bunch of Dark Crystal stuff. And I was like, I haven't seen it in a while. So I watched it with some friends again. Uh, basically, it is an epic fantasy uh, about the Skeksis which are evil bird-like vulture puppets, and they rule over the land and will bring imminent darkness, but it is up to a young gelfling to uh, find the dark crystal shard and return it to the dark crystal so that it can turn the dark crystal into a light crystal and bring balance to the planet. I'm sure I butchered that, but that's like the simplest way I can put it without going into... No,
0: that sounds... I mean that sounds right. Huh. Um, I, this is this is this is a movie that I'm going to put in the category of, and you know this I'm, this might not be the most popular statement, but I don't really give a shit. I'm just going to say what I think is the truth, and that is, it's a movie where, while I don't, I can't say I hate this movie, I find people who really love this movie to be the most annoying thing about this movie. It's, it's along it goes alongside the original movie, The Crow, for me, where it's just like, fans, The the Crow's good, fans of The Crow are so aggressive, Um, and The Dark Crystal is kind of like that too, where it's, you know, it's, it's this kind of weird, not really for me, puppet movie, I remember seeing it as a kid, and being like, eh, whatever, watching it as an adult, and having about the same feeling, but, man, people love this shit, though.
1: I'll be only slightly more favorable. So I was never into this as a kid, but watching it as an adult, I think that it is a technical marvel. I think it's worth watching just for the curiosity of it. But there's something about the the lore of the Dark Crystal and the, the different characters, the world that they build that's the part that doesn't interest me it's more of just like wow this is really cool that this entire scene is done with puppets and not cgi yeah a curiosity piece is what it is for me i i I understand why people like it i won't fault them it's just the story is pretty simple and the big ever evolving lore like the whole thing that they uh the new netflix series like delves deeper into it and the reason i didn't watch it is because i was like i don't care about you know, the, the Skeksis and what happened in the past a thousand years. Like this is what doesn't interest me. I just want to see some interesting puppets. And I am a historical ugly Muppet hater. And this movie is 90% ugly ass Muppets.
0: Yeah. I, I remember there's a, there's a scene that, that, really stuck in my head, which is they're one of the evil, um, uh, vulture birds. Well, one of the, one of the mean birds, Gets like, does something wrong and the other birds beat the fuck out of that this bird, and they strip his feathers off him and and I I remember that scene being one that like as a kid I was very startled by.
1: It's certainly in that camp of kids movies that scared kids, which is like, good. Uh,
0: yeah, it's eighties. It's very eighties. But I remember the point I was getting at was with that that particular scene as well. Is the uh you, you know the the puppetry work for that scene of having you know a group of puppets destroying an, another puppet basically i remember that that scene was you know it was a really well done scene from a from a puppeteering standpoint you know
1: there are a couple like that in there yeah
0: yeah the movie's very good for what it is there but yeah i don't particularly connect to it um you know on a, a story or character level
1: technical marvel but a little boring yeah so yeah, that's the Dark Crystal. I don't know. We're probably gonna get the most hate for that. People either love that movie or they don't give a shit. Um,
0: Bring on the hate mail. I don't care what you think. We don't, I don't. have a,
1: an address. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about knowing your audience. 1984 is the Muppets take Manhattan, a movie that I don't know who this is for.
0: <laughs> well, okay, so. It's tough to get into Muppets Take Manhattan without talking about the formula of Muppet movies. Okay, yeah. Um, so the 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 thing is, and especially with early Muppet movies, I think that they're one of the main issues that afflicts a lot of early Muppet movies is that they they have very strong characters. Everyone knows who the Muppets are. Everyone. The majority of people enjoy the Muppets for what they do. The humor's already built in. So how are you going to get a story where you're going to get as many Muppets involved as possible, a bunch of celebrity cameos, because a lot of early Muppet movies are very based on that as well, and string it out to 90 minutes. And Muppets Take Manhattan is a movie, the story is a mess. And while there are some legitimately funny moments throughout it. There's some decent celebrity cameos. Like, it does everything that the original Muppet movie in 79 does. It does it a lot worse. And it's because the story, the, the original Muppet movie story being Kermit and the Muppets going out to Hollywood to become movie stars, this is kermit and the muppets graduating college and moving out to new york to become broadway stars and then they all sort of quit and then it's a weird it's just kermit kind of kermit focus yeah it's just kermit for a while and then and i get that they did it so that they could show the other muppets and what they're doing in their other careers and shit and like there's some good jokes that are mined out of that but they're still a solid like 30 minutes of this 90-minute movie, there's just sort of Kermit being sad, and that's not very good, and then, and then, like, they come back, and Kermit gets amnesia, and that's the third act, and it's just Kermit trying to deal with his amnesia, and it's just like, you put too many things in this, but you still didn't put enough things in this, like, the storyline is too basic, but also there's too many things, so I don't know, I think the movie's kind of a mess, I didn't love it, um, I did just watch this one for the first time uh, for this podcast, uh, so I didn't grow up with it, I'll clarify. As opposed to the original Muppet movie, which I did grow up with it, I might be a little biased there.
1: I didn't think that I had watched this, and I rewatched it, or I watched it for this episode, and I was like, oh no, I have seen this movie before. Um, and there was one thing that clearly gave it away, the Muppet Babies musical number, which is the most disturbing thing. But let's, I want to kind of talk about that and contrast it with you've got, uh, I I think you were completely right about the flaws of the plot. I think there's also a big flaw in the comedy because you have on one end, these very New York specific jokes and kind of all of those are geared a lot more towards adults or people who would understand. And then you have like a very, very long musical number with the Muppet babies and it's like I I don't think you're balancing who this is for for your audience like I think there's too much stuff that would bore kids and go over kids heads and then the stuff that is for kids I think is so juvenile I don't know if that's the best word to use but like it's geared so young that I think like I as a 27 year old who enjoys the Muppets was like scratching my chair waiting for that Muppet babies number to end
0: yeah, I mean, but it did create the cash cow that is Muppet Babies, a
1: show which I love. But the actual puppet Muppet Babies horrifying.
0: Yeah, didn't care for it. That's a lot of, and like the thing is too is like I felt like a lot of the celebrity cameos in this one were a lot weaker than uh, the ones in uh, uh, you know the original. Like it was this movie was very much a retread of the original. Muppet movie.
1: yeah it's just it, it wasn't as cohesive you're right the cameos weren't as good i'm trying to think like i i the gregory hines one was maybe the one that stood out to me the most as working the most because it was also like the most true cameo sense and like they're in the park and he just is a jogger that runs up and like happens to be at this interaction where kermit and miss piggy are yelling at each other but i don't know that was the one that did it for me and stuck out the most um i also think vignette wise um of what the other Muppets are doing. I, I don't think they did enough of that. Uh, it reminded me of the newest Muppet movie. The Jason Siegel one. Where you get to see a lot of like what the Muppets have been up to in the meantime. When they go collect the gang. I, I wanted a little bit more of that. And I wanted a little bit more jokes mine from that.
0: Yeah. But I appreciated that it was there. Because it was coming to me after watching Kermit just walk around like an asshole for 30 minutes. So like you know. Yeah. I'll take it. It's, I'm, you know, that, I can't, I can't give a lot of shit to the other Muppets. Like, I missed them.
1: Yeah. Who's <laughs> your favorite Muppet? It,
0: that's a, that's a tough question. I like the chef. Swedish chef is good. I'm, I'm not. That's, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an easy choice. Cause like, it's not like he has to do much, <laughs> but anytime he pops up, I'm amused every time. D- Rolf is like that
1: for me. Rolf just gets me every time. Uh, And I will say, talk about, like, differences in humor, Rolf's section in this I thought was kind of weak and
0: went on a little too long. Can we get controversial for a second just for fun? Yeah, sure. Least favorite Muppet, go. Okay, if we want to get
1: real controversial, like, this isn't the best answer, but I generally dislike the trend in Muppet movies moving. Uh, I think a lot of them get wrapped up in the problem of too much Miss Piggy. So I think, and this is a prime example of that. I think something could be said for like Miss Piggy being my least favorite just because of how it sometimes
0: derails story structure and pacing. Yeah. I was, I, I was, gonna, I was gonna say Miss Piggy as well, to be honest. Miss Piggy's always like, I like the idea of Miss Piggy. Miss Piggy's the most overused Muppet And I've always found her mildly annoying um, Though there are some good jokes that come out of her So she's not like a bad absence of good She's more of a bad too much usage
1: Yeah, I think we have the same problem Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Anyway, uh, Muppets Take Manhattan I would say like I, I don't think you need to watch it It's notable for the fact So this was the last uh, Muppet movie uh, Prior to Jim Henson's death yeah, I believe it was also the last Muppet movie. One of the original puppeteers also died. This was his last film. Um, it's certainly one of the weirdest ones, but like I think it's probably better than Great Muppet Caper that came before it. So,
0: If you like the Muppets, you've probably already seen it if you haven't watched it. Uh, if you're not a big Muppet person, this is a moot point. And, uh,
1: yeah, good summation. Um, let's move on to the final Puppet movie, even though this one's... Asterix puppet movie.
0: Well, it's so uh, I mean it's it's very there's a very prominent puppet in this film.
1: Yeah, so it's 1986's Little Shop of Horrors. Um, I love this movie. This would be in my contention of like reasons we picked Frank Oz. Um, the run that he goes on is pretty amazing. But Little Shop of Horrors is this nice culty little movie. It is based off of the musical, uh, the off Broadway musical that went to Broadway, which is also based off of the. F- I think it was a 60s or a late 50s Corman movie. Um, And basically the plot is it's a dorky florist finds a Venus flytrap that craves blood and he has to keep killing to keep the plant happy. And as the plant grows and gets more successful, this little dork gets more popular and more power. And it stars the wonderful Rick Moranis. I think it's his greatest role too. He is perfect in this musical something that like didn't really think he could do
0: yeah um this is i put would put this in contention for one of the greatest movie musicals of all time this is a whoa. fantastic movie musical it is
1: but, whoa um, that's big
0: it, no i mean for sure it's and movie musicals are a you know a, a genre that you and i have talked about it at, at length amongst ourselves where they can be super hit or miss um, and yeah, I think this is a fantastic movie musical. Um, I think the, the cast is outstanding, particularly a great leading performance from, uh, Rick Moranis along with Steve Martin, obviously as the, as the dentist, um, just absolutely steals every scene he's in. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a, it's a fun time. It's, uh, overall... Art direction and, and puppetry contained in the film are, are, are fantastic. It, it really brings you into the world of the movie. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it, like it it encompasses that Corman-type movie that it's emulating, while at the same time doing its own thing with it and being a really, really strong movie musical.
1: Yeah, so uh, if you don't understand when we say Corman, basically we're talking this movie has a B-movie plot. But... The yes. music is done by Alan Menken, who, you know, Disney Renaissance and tons of Broadway musicals. Like, the music in this rocks. It's a mix of R&B and funk and pop and standard musical theater. I, I would say, like, it's one of those rare musicals for me that, like, I can listen to the full cast recording without really skipping much. Because it's just a ton of variety and all the songs are really good. Yeah.
0: And no, it- it's... it's- the music is very
1: strong. And if you're talking about it, so Steve Martin is not the greatest singer, but he plays the dentist, a role where he gets to be as big and buffoonish as probably like top in his career. Um, the dentist, it's a dentist who loves causing people pain. He's a sadist. So, like, that's his character background. He apparently spent weeks filming because him and Frank Oz would just improvise over and over and over different things for him to do. Uh, generally different cruel and malicious things for him to do with the background extras and pieces of the set and things like
0: that. I would say that the the energy that Steve Martin exudes in this particular performance is reminiscent of uh, the energy that he brings in like his you know classical movies like The Jerk. Like in the mid 80s, I think that Steve Martin definitely sort of took a dip where he was sort of uh, kind of got pigeonholed as a, a leading man occasionally. And while he does a formidable job, he didn't get to be as ridiculous as we all know he's capable of being. And this is a movie where he just got to, you know, be a bastard and have a fun time. And it really shows off how much fun he's having.
1: Uh, speaking of the cast, I so I learned something for this. So Ellen Green plays the love interest in the movie, whose name is Audrey. She is actually the original actress from the off-Broadway cast. They went through like a couple different actresses and she was like, can I please audition? And Frank Oz was like, yeah. And he was like, she was phenomenal. Uh, Very rare that you get to see that crossover from stage to screen. Uh, I believe she's the only cast member that got to do that transferal. So that was really good. Uh, The plant is named Audrey 2. Uh, that's voiced by Levi Stubbs, who's the lead singer of the Four the Four Tops, like "Baby I Need Your Lovin." So like, I didn't know that. Really, Rick Moranis is surprisingly a good singer, but and Steve Martin doesn't isn't asked to do a lot vocally, but the rest of the cast is really really damn good. You were talking about how this looks so good. Uh, this is a movie that was entirely shot on backlots, and I think that helps. It gives yeah. it this fantasy esque look to it but it also kind of makes it timeless it reminded me a little bit of like back to the future almost of how like the town in back to the future generally looks timeless this is supposed to be like a dirty downtown street scene and the florist and the dentist office and stuff like that but it still kind of works for me because it helps put it into this fantasy world it's just yeah. a very grounded fantasy world
0: no i agree with.
1: Yeah, honestly, I don't have much else to say about it. Like, I can't recommend watching it highly enough. I I, I actually, I found some really interesting stuff. So we talk about Frank Oz being a puppeteer and stuff. This was a real problem for them that they worked on forever to get the plant to work. Because the plant is uh, like seven different puppets. And they built a couple more throughout um, production. They had to film everything for the plant in half time, speed it up. So all of the musical numbers where the plant and the humans are interacting are actually the actors, like, mouthing half-time and then going back and redubbing their lines in because they found out that the plant looks better in Fast Forward. Interesting. So, like, this is one of those movies that also, like, it is technically very interesting and complex for its time.
0: Well, yeah, and it's, you know, it's, it's continued growth in... The career of Frank Oz, you know, from a puppetry standpoint. And we're about to head into the section where the puppetry in his movies ceases to be. So, um, you know, let's say goodbye to to act one of his filmography, which is three puppet movies. And let's transition into uh, not puppetry.
1: Yeah, the one that we kind of picked him for. uh, 1988's Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Basic premise, you got two con men of various different skills one is an elitist british praying off of high society women the other one is american small time just doing like simple grifts on people he sees on the street and on the trains and just getting by they have a competition to try and get a predetermined amount of money off of the same woman and that it's a territory dispute that's the simple premise of it one con man going up against another but those two con men are michael Caine and steve martin and i think it is my favorite steve martin performance probably um and it's one of my favorite michael Caine performances as well and i think both of them are playing into their strengths so well and also playing off of each other really well there's great chemistry like Michael Caine is yeah. best in my mind when he's elitist and Steve Martin is best in my mind when he's a little bit of a jerk and in this he gets to be kind of his like a little bit zany comedy like you see in The Jerk in The Dentist um, in Little Shop of Horrors uh, but it's just perfectly pitched for me uh, Michael Caine was even nominated for a Golden Globe for this movie like
0: I, I think these performances are that strong and a world award-worthy oh no they yeah i mean they have wonderful chemistry with one another and you know it's yeah i mean it's definitely a movie where you will get um consistent laughs and you're sucked into the story as well
1: and it's beautiful looking i mean the whole thing takes place in the french riviera um uh, you had made me watch to catch a thief this year and it's got that same kind of vibe to me it's very beautiful and luscious jet setting feels like you know it could be a set piece in a bond movie. Um, and it all takes place there.
0: I, I, I absolutely love it. I think the jokes are solid and still hold up. It's funny that you mentioned to catch a thief because, you know, I, I'd watched to catch a thief uh, the same year. I had watched this, um, you know, for the first time, because uh, I mentioned in the beginning, I'd watch it for the first time last year. And, uh, yeah, I agree completely. They're both, you know, just the the setting of the movie almost being a character within the movie, you know? Absolutely. And very rare is that character, you know, not like
1: the streets of New York. It's like this lush French Riviera with, you know, lovely outdoor patios and gardens and the seascape. Ugh. It's great. Yeah, it's pretty and shit. This it's is, pretty is a and shit. feel-good, pretty movie for me. Like, it, it is the definition of comfort food. It's easy on the eyes. It's easy on the ears. You'll chuckle a little bit. Great, A. Love it.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a perfectly enjoyable comedy. And, you know, it's a its a movie that's, I would say, watchable and rewatchable. Um, you know, you could probably, I imagine the more you watch it, the, the, the more you get out of it as well. Oh, yeah, you can pick um, up on
1: Little Stuff Tons. I, I've seen this movie probably 20 times.
0: Yeah. But, you know, it's, a, it, it's nice. I think con movies in general is just a great genre, and this is a, a, a very good entry in that genre. Totally.
1: So this leads into his next film. His next film is What About Bob? 1991, yeah. a movie starring uh, Bill Murray, who he had worked with in, like, a small expanded cameo role. In Little Shop of Horrors, and Richard Dreyfuss, who he had never worked with before and never worked with again. Uh, but what about Bob? Nick, tell me about it, because you love this movie.
0: Yeah, I do. So, what about Bob? Is the is the story? It's the story of a uh, guy who's got some issues, um, named Bob Wiley, played by Bill Murray, um, and he gets a a new therapist. Um, Played by Richard Dreyfuss, and he has the introductory meeting with uh, with Richard Dreyfuss. And Richard Dreyfuss is mainly only trying to sell his book and get out the door because he's got uh, he's got to go away for the summer to his summer vacation home with his family. Bill Murray's character Bob is obs- becomes obsessed with trying to do the Richard Dreyfuss uh, format of of living, um, and he ends up tracking down Richard Dreyfus and his family, and joining them at their home at Lake Winnipesaukee, in New Hampshire. And uh, it ends up being a lot of the comedy is derived from all of Richard Dreyfus's family and friends falling in love with Bob, even though Richard Dreyfus is just trying to get him to go home because he has no interest in spending time with his patient while he's on vacation. Um, and so it's like Bill Murray being, I would say peak Bill Murray annoying. That's a
1: good, Um, that's a good way to frame it. Bill Murray's peak, like, uh, could you say, you know, he went in before he was like a leading man in like Ghostbusters and stuff like that. When he was a little bit more relegated to the character actor roles, he was always a little bit more playing a foil or a goofus or some form of annoyance.
0: I mean, he's definitely, he's definitely hit a lot of things like that throughout his, like, his career. But Bill Murray is often seen at his peak when he's being, you know, kind of a smartass. Yeah. And being the, you know, being the smartest and funniest guy in the room is very much what Bill Murray um, is most known for, I'd say. In this particular case, he may be the smartest guy in the room, but... At the same time, he his character is ends up becoming a lot more of a like a like a social idiot savant, right? Like he's he's not trying to be the most popular person in the world, but everyone loves him because he's just so earnest. And the only person who sees a problem with how he's behaving is Richard Dreyfus. When it comes down to it, in terms of watching uh, a an actor gradually lose his shit throughout the movie. Richard Dreyfuss does a masterclass in that, in What About Bob? He goes from this smarmy, overly confident psychiatrist to a mental patient by the end of this movie. And Bill Murray's, like, rock-solid, socially awkward but still lovable performance is what drives him there.
1: Okay, I have a question for you, because I, I haven't seen this movie in a while. I watched it, like, in high school. Uh, last, my memory of it was that, uh, how do I want to put this? Bill Murray in a lot of his leading man roles is playing above the circumstances and above the rest of the other characters. It's not that he's being like elitist, but that's kind of one of his personas that he adopts. It's more of like a, ah, it's all going to work out. I'm the lead of this movie. So like. I get what's going on, everything's above me. This, I always remember not being that type of performance. It was something a little different that I had seen from him, of him kind of playing directly into the circumstances of the movie, not coasting above it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's... So, like, if I were to give a comparison to a movie we've talked about recently, and actually this might lead to another, you know, kind of... I guess so. This might lead to part of the reasoning why this might not be one of your favorite uh, Bill and Mary performances is I think what it's most comparable in terms of recent movies we talked about to Elf, where it's it's definitely fish out of water, but it's you know the the dynamic within Elf of, of Will Ferrell kind of winning over everyone in James Caan's life. And eventually James Caan. Except the difference is is this movie's not for children. And he really never wins over uh, Richard Dreyfuss throughout the course of the movie. Well,
1: and from a viewpoint, the
0: movie's elf is not
1: told through the lens of James Caan. I feel like What About Bob is told through the lens of Richard Dreyfuss. Which is why it's an interesting dynamic. Because it's like, Frank Oz has even talked about it. Like, you know, when you see this movie when you're a little bit younger you laugh at Bill Murray when you see it when you're a little bit older, you just feel
0: for Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Because, I mean, Bill Murray, Bill Murray is very funny in this movie, um, but the, the strength of his performance comes from the earnestness of it, which is very different than, I would say, a lot of previous Bill Murray roles. Earnestness. Then, That's yeah.
1: what I was trying to get at. Like, yes. Yeah.
0: That's something that I and think is a
1: little bit rare for him and especially rare for his characters at this time period in his career.
0: Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, it was a, it's a very strong performance from Murray and it's him really kind of going outside the box of what he normally does. And then it's just so fun watching Richard Dreyfuss lose his mind.
1: Um, which uh, Richard Dreyfuss actually did lose his mind. What about Bob is kind of the first thing we can talk about in the career of Frank Oz of Frank Oz not getting along with people something he is very famous for um he always says that you know part of it is just because he is a task mask task master um i think part of it probably has to do with working for jim henson and the amount of grueling work they all had to do as puppeteers and voice actors and things like that but yeah he didn't get along with bill murray at all fought with him a lot didn't really get along with uh, richard Dreyfus. and then bill murray tortured richard dreyfus on this movie like richard dreyfus has given many interviews after the fact saying like yeah look we didn't get along but like we were both a little methody about it and i encouraged him to get under my skin and i'm like oh no 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 no. i know richard dreyfus's reputation i know bill murray's reputation i'm sure that they were just two alphas on the set with a third alpha director and they just all were just screaming at each other
0: yeah, and that's the thing too. Is like there's definitely been, you know, obviously, the, you know, there's cases throughout history of, you know, onset feuds and onset fights, and sometimes it leads to a shitty movie, and sometimes it leads to a good movie. And I would say this is the this is the latter for sure, where you know you can really feel. In Richard Dreyfuss' performance, the the annoyance that he's going through, and while he is a good enough of a, you know he's a good enough actor, where you know I don't know if the, the method elements of it were 100 percent needed, uh, I think they contribute to my enjoyment of the film immensely. And, and I think the
1: uh,
0: I, this is kind of getting into a little bit more
1: speculation, but from Bill Murray's movies, there has been rumors that Bill Murray. Not that he is like difficult to work with, like an Ed Norton is difficult to work with right now, but he's difficult to work with in the sense that like he does need a stronger, more almost bullyish presence behind the camera to draw out the best in him. I mean, that's what they always said about um, uh, uh, Landis and him. That there was always, you know, not like there was physical tension or anything, but they kept the energy high through a little bit of playful aggression. Um, same with a little bit him and Harold Ramis, which eventually kind of blew up. Um,
0: well, thank God for Jim Jarmusch.
1: Oh yeah. And and Wes Anderson, I'm sure he's just, you know, everyone on those movies is probably just on tons of Zoloft. They're fine. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I, I think it adds to the strengths of this movie. This movie for me is, I I know I am such a Steve Martin fan. We kind of referenced it earlier. The jerk has never been one of my favorite movies. This to me is like a more entertaining version of the jerk in the terms of idiot savant being the main character.
0: Yeah. Like, no, this is, this is one of my, one of my favorite movies from everyone involved in this movie. Like I honestly, I kind of want to go watch it right now. Well, you let's stop recording. I want to go watch it.
1: You had said originally that this was going to be the reason that you picked Frank Oz, that this was your movie.
0: It's a great movie. I'd say, watch it. Uh,
1: another one of his movies that is also like Frank Oz is almost like a cult director. He's had so many movies that have like made their budget back and then a little bit, but like as far as smash hits, they're fewer and farther between, but a lot of his have um, through home video and syndication have become really good earners for the studio. And I think that's interesting where a director kind of thrives in that market. I mean, you're talking about, Dirty Round Scoundrels, What About Bob, Little Shop of Horrors, which was a flop when it came out and made just a ton of money on home video, uh, Dark Crystal, and we'll get to a couple more later. But that's kind of where he lives, which I think is interesting, because I don't think he's, like, a bad director. It's just, you know, maybe he's tapped into that cult zeitgeist.
0: Yeah, well... Is that a transition? No,
1: I, I was literally, I just was spitting words out of my mouth to try and find a transition to House Sitter, his next movie. I don't got one. The House Sitter is really interesting, though. So, the House Sitter came out in 1992. It is a um, fun, high-concept comedy starring Steve Martin and Goldie Hawn. Uh, basically, uh, the premise is a uh, an architect, played by Steve Martin, builds a house to propose to his fiancée. Uh, he, you know, he ties a big ribbon around the house. He brings her up to the country where it is. He proposes and she turns him down. He's destroyed by it. He ends up sleeping with a waitress played by Goldie Hawn. And as they're, you know, talking in the lead up to them having sex, he mentions the house and the bad breakup and things like that. Uh, the next morning... Steve Martin wakes up, Golihan is gone, and it turns out that she has gone upstate to the house that she has now learned is abandoned, this beautiful new home, so she can live rent-free. And while she's up there, she has to pretend to be his wife, and then eventually Steve Martin comes up there and discovers her, and they kind of continue on in this con that they are in that they are husband and wife. It's very odd movie. Hmm. Hmm. I've never seen this. But what's odd about it, it's high concept in the sense that like a, a guy having to pretend that someone is his wife is kind of standard comedy, but this brings it to a higher concept where they both immediately go along with the con and it leads to some pretty funny dual circumstances. Uh, honestly, I was getting a couple hints of love me if you dare. If you remember that, where it's like yeah. a, a stranger relationship. Um, but they believably find themselves enough times throughout the movie pretending to be in the marriage but oz is taking those tropes of like fights in that and using it for a double scene about them in the con and of course throughout it steve martin realizes that goldie Hawn is the woman that he should be with and goldie Hawn finds that you know she actually does want to settle down and love steve martin But it happens kind of later on and in a different order, you would think. And a lot more of the comedy is just derived from the fact that they keep finding themselves in this stupid con where they have to lie more and more. And the lies get a little tropey, but they keep it going because of their chemistry. I mean, Goldie Hawn and Steve Martin have incredible chemistry together, and they're just two of the best comedic actors out there. Is it designed where it's making fun of the tropes deliberately? That's what I never felt. It, it, felt, it feels more like they kind of just backdoored into this very clever situation where, um, just to give you an example, they've met with Steve Martin's parents and had a little argument under the guise of their relationship. And then you see them in the car home having an argument. But the argument has continued from the fake argument and has turned into a real argument about the con, less about the characters that they are playing in the con. Even though the characters that they are playing in the con is is themselves, but their relationship is the con, I guess. Again, oddly higher concept than you would think based off of this premise. But it really, really works. And the other thing is, uh, so the original wife, Uh, Is played by Dana Delaney. And Steve Martin is constantly trying to get back together with Dana Delaney throughout the movie. And there's a lot of rivalry between her and Goldie Hawn and them having to lie to get around the fact that eventually Steve Martin wants to have a fake divorce with Goldie Hawn so he can be with Dana Delaney because now that he's married, she's a little jealous. She's seeing a new side of him. It's got a lot of stuff very honestly expertly layered together to make it all feel grounded and real even though we're talking like real real high concept in the strange lies that go on like you get the basic tropes of Goldie Hawn makes up a backstory about her parents and uh tells Steve Martin's boss and Steve Martin's boss has to meet Goldie Hawn's parents so she gets like two bums off of the street and she gives them fancy clothes and They have to pretend to be the parent. It's stuff like that, but it just works in this.
0: Cool. That sounds interesting. I want to watch it.
1: Yeah, I I feel like I'm not doing it enough justice just because it's a little hard to explain around. I'll say this. Goldie Hawn is one of the best comedic actresses of all time. Steve Martin is one of the best comedic actors of all time. This is a really good premise by a steady-handed director. It's worth you seeking out.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. Cool. Yeah. Can we talk about the movie where, 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 there's, where there's Native Americans in cupboards?
1: I thought you were going to say the Native American in the cabinet.
0: Yeah, I was trying to think of another word for cupboard. I couldn't think of one. <laughs> poor, poor comedy on my part. That's what I get for working for a whole day and forgetting what cupboards are. Um, Cabinets. Yeah, this Cabinets. is a weird follow-up. Box. So, I mean, House Sitter wasn't a, a, a huge hit, but it still
1: was somewhat successful. But then he pivots all the way into 1995's
0: The Indian in the Cupboard. Take it away. Yeah, so the the Indian in the cupboard is a is a family film about a little boy named Omri, which I always thought was a, a strange name. But Omri is a is a nice little boy who gets a, a cupboard. Um, from his brother as a gift, It's kind of a shitty gift, but you know, it is what it is. And then he also has a, he's got a a bunch of, he's got a lot of toys. He likes toys, but then he goes and, and looks for a key for the cupboard. Don't know why. I guess he wants to lock the cupboard, but like, you can't just find a key and make it a cupboard work, but then he found a key that did work in the cupboard. So that's not believable. (laughs) <laughs> um but anyway, he's got this k- cupboard key and it turns out that when he locks the cupboard with this key the key's magic and whatever he puts in the cupboard comes to life now at this point this is where i would be like okay i want to make as many things come to life as possible because i'm very curious about this he does not make enough things come to life in this movie Sorry to get into a criticism during the plot description, but I'm just saying. Like, I would have put everything I own in that fucking cupboard.
1: So, uh, Um, Nick, I'm not as familiar with this movie. I want to do a little recap. So, a kid gets a cupboard from his brother, finds a magic key. Magic key, when you put a toy in the cupboard and lock it with the magic key, toy comes to life.
0: Yeah, well, then you open it again and it comes to life. And then you close it again and it goes back to being a toy. Okay. The rules are, like, consistent. Hey, that's all I ask for. With the accuracy of this cupboard. Okay. Um, But yeah, that's the premise. I remember back in the day, there was... Oh, well, sorry. No, that's not the full premise, right? Because I just sort of explained the rules of the movie. The premise is, is that he puts a little toy Native American in there. And the toy Native American comes to life. And his friend, his douchebag friend throws a toy cowboy in there, and the cowboy comes to life, to life, too. And then the key gets lost. So there's just a tiny Indian and the cowboy who hate each other, and they need to figure out where this key is before the toys kill each other. What? That's the premise. That's
1: the movie. Oh, sorry. I, have no- I watched this movie when I was a kid. Probably around the time it came out, I would have been, like, six. Don't remember... The Native American cowboy conflict being the central story. It's part of it. I thought it was more like big part they of it. just got along. Like I thought this was like night at the no. museum.
0: No, they become friends in like the third act, man. Like those they're they're trying to kill each other for a lot of this movie. Oh. Okay. Yeah. No, there's definitely there there's definitely some fight in there. Well the thing is like the movie does get held back because there's a lot of like stuff going on in the human world as well. So like the movie doesn't really like there's a there's a decent chunk of this movie that involves them fighting or arguing or whatever, and then but there's a lot of like oh well, we need to like the the, so the, the douchebag friend can't stress enough this kid's a douchebag, like the, the movie doesn't decide he's a douchebag I just think he's a douchebag you know what I mean, he's like he's the source of a lot of the conflict it's like don't put anything in the cupboard because it comes to life. And he's like, I'm gonna do that immediately. And then they're like, these, We all have that these, friend. Cre- like, these creatures are living, and the key is gone. And he's like, I want to take these living, these these living beings, to school. And Omri, the main kid,'s like, No, why would we ever do that? And the kid's like, Come on. And Omri's like, Okay, fine. So that's a conflict in the movie. Like they didn't have to do that. Also, the kid, I, I recall, if I recall, the kid is not a particularly good actor. It makes sense because his mom is played by um, David Mamet's wife. Also not a good actress. <laughs> uh, what is it? Uh, we watched Lucy it this year. Krause?
1: It sucks Krause?
0: Um, no, I'm trying to think of her name.
1: I was trying to think of the movie we watched this year. House of House of Games?
0: Yeah, House uh, of Games. Lindsey Krause. That's her name. Lindsey Krause. But yeah, she's the, yeah, she's the mom. She's a mom. It's not a big deal. There's also a scene that I I recall making me laugh quite a bit. Last time I watched this movie was a while ago. The scene that made me laugh last time I watched it was he gets mugged by this kid in a mohawk at one point. Like Omri has to go to the store to buy something. He has to buy screws for his dad. They took a page out of the page master. He has to go go to the store and buy screws for his dad and uh, he gets he gets robbed by this kid in a mohawk and Omri the character's response to the mohawk boy is you don't deserve that hair. <laughs> and I thought that I think that's hilarious. That is a great insult. Uh, <laughs> so can I can I ask you a couple questions? You can ask me as many questions as you want. I feel like a and a is the best way to cover this. Movie. Yeah, I think firstly, I believe you had told me that like this was a, a childhood staple of yours. Is that correct? It's a movie that I watched as a kid Many times I owned the VHS It actually had a thing Where You got the toy You could take the, the v- Well the toys came with it for sure But you could also So the VHS cover you turn it inside out And it was a cupboard
1: Oh That's good marketing
0: Yeah It wasn't magic though It was just a VHS cover was, Yeah Didn't make any of the toys come alive Next question.
1: This isn't really a comedy, right? This is kind of more, no, a family. It's certainly a family film, but it's like a little bit more dramatically pitched.
0: Yeah, it's almost a, it's almost a character piece. It's it's a, it's a movie. It's it's this weird That's why you movie about like. What? That's why
1: you watched it a lot as what? a kid.
0: Yeah, probably. No, it was just It's this weird like. Allegory about how people shouldn't play God <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's what this is. Huh. It's Omri's got a little bit of a god complex and, and the Indian and the cowboy put him in his place. The cowboy almost dies.
1: Okay, my next question is not as an adult, but like if you were a kid today, do you think that this has any kind of staying power in the family film genre?
0: I mean, no, I I mean, I'm sure there's like, it's the kind of movie that like I, I picture it like this. If, if this movie were like on a Netflix or something and a kid watched it, he'd be like, he or she would be like, yeah, that was all right, maybe. I can't imagine anyone's going to be, like, my favorite movie is The End in the Cupboard. Okay. So I don't even think in our generation anyone's favorite movie is The End in the Cupboard.
1: I, like, I certainly have memories of watching it, but I really don't remember much. I think I always kind of lumped this movie in with never-ending story of a little too, for lack of a better word, slow and boring for me as a kid.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost in a, a, like... It's almost an adult-centric plot, but definitely told through the eyes of a kid for kids, right? Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I mean, it's definitely not a movie that I would consider to be, you know, super appealing to kids. I don't know how well the movie did.
1: I Um, can tell you right now. um, Kind of a little bit around his uh, rest of his stuff is a $35 million budget. It grossed $45 million, but he kind of got like a gimme out of it it opened the same weekend as Batman and forever and Apollo 13, which were like juggernaut hits in 1995. So I think everyone just kind of gave it like a soft pass.
0: Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. It's, but it's a movie that like, if it was the the leading movie that weekend, it'd be in that era. It'd be a weekend that not that many people go to the movies. Right. And so, you know, it's, yeah, I don't think it necessarily has a ton of, Marketability or anything like that. Uh, I, as a movie itself, it, it's just, as far as I'm concerned, it's more weird than good. But it is kind of worth a watch. Like I kind of want to go back and rewatch it. I'd recommend going back and rewatching it too, but only for like movie nerds like us that want to just like see what happened. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it's a, it's weird. It's more weird than anything else.
1: And it also it comes at a weird point in his career. I mean for the most part, this is a man who has lived in the standard comedy realm.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess you got to start doing family films. So this was almost a return to that, but that's an interesting one too, because this is a family film that doesn't really do much with puppetry, you know, and there might be a little bit of puppetry here and there. Like I know there's a brief period where he puts a bunch of shit in the cupboard to see what comes to life. And it's like a, it's like a stormtrooper and a dinosaur. Um, and, like... But I don't think... I want to say that's CGI and not puppetry, though, so I don't know. Or maybe stop-motion? Yeah, it might be stop-motion. But, yeah. I don't know. Also, just a random cameo. like Not cameo, but a small character actor that appears in this movie. There's some injuries to people occasionally. And, uh... Or or death. There is death. Death is explored in this movie. Yeah, the the medic. they, They get a medic from... His, like, brother's military set or whatever. And the medic, when the medic is brought to life, is played by Steve Coogan. Oh, hey. <laughs> it's just like, oh, hey, what's up, mid-90s Steve Coogan? Good for you. Uh, you say that it—last ex- question, because
1: we probably should keep plowing through, but you say that it involves death. Is this one of those movies that, like, maybe parents would show to kids because it explores some headier themes, or— or, is this just a failed experiment?
0: I think it's more of a failed experiment than than a movie that you would really teach death. So, like, I'll, I'll explain the death segment real quick. At one point, because it's also it does create some other odd implications as well. Um, but uh, Omri to to give the Native American more people to to be around at one point steals a, an old you know uh, from the school where they've got a bunch of Native American figurines or whatever uh, steals an old man and he opens the the cupboard after doing it and the guy just has a heart attack and dies immediately. Um, um, and so the the former toy is now a dead real thing and they hold a funeral for it and all that shit. Which you know, this is the same year as Toy Story, right? So like there's a lot of thoughts that come up there yeah. in terms of the death of toys and that sort of thing. But that's where they explore death is is from this um this elderly Native American toy that the the minute being converted to real is too frightened of the main boy and drops dead. Alrighty. This has been Nick's Q and A on a kids' movie no one's seen well
1: i i would um i wish i would have asked my girlfriend about this i feel like it's a movie that a lot of our generation saw like if i remember correctly this yeah. was always one of those like do you remember a when you could go to movie theaters but b when movie theaters did like matinee runs with an intermission thrown in them of kids movies for like a discount pricing did you ever have that
0: that wasn't really a Philly thing, no.
1: At least not in my my area. That was something that like I I did occasionally cuz I <laughs> to my credit, I was a snob back then. I always fucking hated the intermission that they would do and I would complain about it. My mom was like, "That's so that the daycares that bring their kids there can all do a potty break." And I was like, "Sit through a movie." But Indian in the Cupboard was one that I feel that um the Jonathan Taylor Thomas Pinocchio it was a couple of movies like that that were always on that bill of, like, where, you know, you got one movie every week. Maybe two movies every week. They would devote two theaters to it. Um So, I, I, I think maybe more people saw it and just forgot it of our generation. I'd be curious if like, do you know if, like, any of the guys you live near, any, any of the gangs have seen this?
0: I mean, I could ask around, but I didn't pull...
1: I don't know. We we should probably move on. It, it's a movie that interests <laughs> me mainly because of the way you've talked about it, um, but it's something I yeah. haven't sought out since I was
0: over the age of ten. It's definitely weird. Leave it at that. If you like weird older movies from the nineties, it's definitely one to talk. Like I'm I'm shocked that there had, that there like wasn't a nostalgia critic episode on this in like the early to mid two thousands.
1: Gotcha. Well, there's just no good transition to get us into the next film either.
0: Key goes in, key comes out.
1: Hey, 1997's In and Out. I love this movie. I believe I had gotten you to watch it the first year on the list because I'd recommended it to Cassie. Um, But this is a movie that I grew up with being raised in the football Bible belt but also being in an artistic family where I had lots of gay uncles. This was kind of one of my first, like, real introductions to homosexuality. Mainly because, so this is a comedy. Um, uh, it, it's honestly a early and very notable attempt by Hollywood at uh, doing a comedic movie having homosexuality at its center, but also very much not having a negative comedic stance towards the homosexuality at the center. And yeah, so I saw this at a really young age. I I always thought it was kind of a charming, funny movie looking back. It's a little bit uh, problematic in some of its dealings, but for me as a kid, it was, you know, it was important.
0: Yeah. I would say it's super ahead of its time for, for how it handles homosexuality in a mainstream way. Yeah. Um, but so I'm sure you know, especially when you're when you're treading on topics like that, you know, especially with the world being such a different place now than it was in 1997. Is it 1997? Yeah, um, yeah. It, 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 there's going to be things that don't translate as well, and you know that's where I think you need to be careful with the lens that you watch a movie, in, especially a movie like this, because this is a movie that was very groundbreaking in that sense.
1: And I I just want to frame it with my personal backstory from it because, you know, it was groundbreaking in in the larger sense, but in the micro sense, it it was just one of those things that like, you know, it it helped me understand a little bit in a non-negative way about, you know, I'm talking about, I've had gay people in my life since I was born, but it wasn't something that was like, you know, talked about in any way besides kids... Hurling insults at me. So, this was something that at least helped give me context. Um, so, I think it's important just for that for me. But let's look at it just through the lens of rewatching it now as a movie. Um, it, it, it's got a strange plot. Uh, a high school teacher is called out as being gay during an award speech from one of his former students. Yet, he's, you know, he's believed that he is straight throughout his entire life. He is literally about to be married. But because he is outed on public television, not only does he have to kind of reflect and come to terms with his sexuality, you've also got everyone in this town that has thought he was straight in this very... I, I don't remember what state they're in, but it is a farming community, a smaller town. Everyone's reaction to this news and, you know, how they think of him differently, how his job as a teacher is now on the line, how his marriage and his fiance, what... That does to his relationship, um, so it's very odd. Uh, apparently, I looked into it. It was based off of Tom Hanks' acceptance speech for the uh, Best Actor for Philadelphia. That's where like the writer got kind of the idea to use this as a premise. Not that Tom Hanks accidentally outed someone, but he was like, "Oh, that would be a good setup for this movie." And yeah, I I think it's really great. Kevin Klein plays the uh, teacher. I'm a huge Kevin Klein fan. I just always think he's very funny. And he is a big theatrical actor. So I think that he's hes not playing it effeminately, but he's certainly putting little touches. Like there's a funny little scene where um, he's about to give a speech and one of his students that is on his side like gives him like, hey, just watch your hands. And he's like, what are you talking about? And he looks back and his hands are like in a limped wrist position he like stuffs it in his pocket like he he's giving little touches of broader stereotypes of homosexuality but he's not you know sashaying across the floor which is very important but even as an actor he's just charming um you've got joan cusack who is always funny she was actually nominated for best supporting actor for this movie because um, she really is funny playing his fiance she is uh uh it's actress, right? Yeah, sorry, did I say actor?
0: You did. You know. I was going to say, it's, it's progressive, but you know.
1: Yeah, she's really good in it. She plays his uh, fiance that kind of has her own little breakdown as this news comes out and as he comes to grips with it. Uh, they also have not really had a physical relationship, uh, and she has a complex that she thinks it's about her weight, so she is very obsessed with working out and her physical appearance. And her little, she has a nice arc through the movie about learning that, like, it it really, it was nothing about you. And the two of them reaching that conclusion is important. I think it's handled pretty well. And then the former student that outs Kevin Klein is Matt Dillon, who's playing Kevin Dillon. And he's funny as hell. Like, it's little things of someone who's only watched a lot of Kevin Dillon's work that you're like, you're stealing stuff from your brother. Because he's basically playing, like, a dumber (laughs) version of himself. And, I mean, it's Kevin Dillon. So, yeah, uh, I think it's a strong supporting cast uh, all the way down the line. Um, The townsfolk reacting to him being called out, it really does broach the full comedic spectrum. I mean, uh, you've got, like, one of his classes is very nervous um, and tepid about it until he kind of addresses it in one of his lectures. And then they become, like, really supportive. Um, You've got, you know, reporters hounding his school, uh, flooding it because you know, out and on a major news network, there's a lot of news coverage, and you have uh, people from the news shouting at him like, if he knows about lesbians in the space program, and are gay men going to Mars? So, there's like Frank Oz really hits the broad gambit of reactions to this some of it heartfelt, some of it outlandish. Because in real life, that's kind of what you get, unfortunately. Um, the movie gets its name from a famous speech given by one of his high school players. It's the in-and-out speech where he talks about in-holes and out-holes. And that's honestly one of the things that probably just doesn't age as well. But, as I was watching it now, I was just kind of like, I don't know. Like, if I didn't have the growing up that I did, and I, I didn't grow up in a small town, but maybe if I grew up in a smaller town, this is how a 16, 17-year-old might think about this if they were uneducated about it. So... I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know. Look, it's high comedy. It's smartly pitched. It allows the humor to kind of hide some of the ugly truths about the circumstances. But I do think that overall, this is a movie that is made with heart um, and is really, really trying to do good while still playing into a uh, large audience, I guess, viewpoint, like trying to make sure that they're hitting all of their bases. I, I, yeah, I, I just really love it. So you've seen it. What are your opinions, Nick?
0: Yeah, I, I was. Firstly, I always thought it was in and out, like in the closet, out of the closet. That's where I, that, like, that was the idea that I always thought.
1: Oh no, no, no there's the the title. A direct quote. Like, I, I'm not making that. Like, that's what it said. But it said through the lens of a teenager who doesn't really understand. This is the first person, probably
0: right. the first no, gay I mean, person I, they've ever met. I remember I I remember that dialogue. I still just felt like the the title was still very much that like I don't think that the title like I never in I never saw the movie like from a title standpoint that it was through the lens of that line of dialogue like I, I thought it was more just a, a broad sense of what the characters going through just oh. being in the closet and then being out of the closet you
1: know what I didn't find anything directly refuting that so honestly it could be.
0: Yeah. I, I don't know. I just feel it feels a little bit better than just title your movie after some, you know, locker room dialogue. Yeah. Um, but uh, but no, I mean, overall, I think I agree with you pretty much in, on all fronts with this one. I, I think that ultimately this movie for me works because it's just kind of a nice movie. Um, it's, you know, it's a likable lead character going through an interesting struggle and uh, the movie doesn't take itself, like, it takes itself as seriously as it needs to, but it has fun along the way and it just ends up being, you know, an enjoyable time, but also it does have that level of, um, you know, kind of ahead of its time in in terms of you know, the, this coming out during an era where g- gay characters in media had to be super, super over the top, and this is one where they d- took a, a subdued performance and added a level of, of humanization to it. So, like, based on when it came out, I think this movie's kind of fascinating in that sense. But then beyond that, it's just you know, it's just a nice movie.
1: Yeah, and I would say that it, there are a couple people that are made out to be villains in the movie. But overall, a lot of the movie is just about a, a, a town of people, when they find out that he's gay, immediately having a strong reaction against it. But then, as much of the movie is about Kevin Klein coming to terms with his sexuality, it's also about the town coming to terms with being okay with his sexuality. One of the funniest sections is his bachelor party, where they, you know, the bachelor party scene, the climax of it is a large argument about barbara streisand and all of the bros who are farmers and plumbers and all of his friends are you know you made us watch that you did the barbara streisand film festival we're gonna argue over her best performance i don't like yentl how dare you not like yentl and they gotta fight over it like it, it's funny and it, it yeah. never feels like they're really going for the easy joke like, I, I can't stress enough. This movie does have a little bit of an icky lens looking back, but looking at the product of its time, it has just such good intentions and so much heart put behind it.
0: Yeah. So let's
1: move on from that. Let's talk about his next movie where he kind of, um, he goes back and partners with Steve Martin for 1999's Bowfinger. <sighs> uh, Never cared for it. I didn't either. I'll kind of take the lead on this just because I feel like I've probably watched it more. This is one of those movies that I've watched multiple times trying to like it, and I just never have. Um, Basically, it's a Hollywood satire. Um, Steve Martin plays a uh, low-time movie producer who's trying to sell his latest script, which is terrible, and he can't find a buyer. So what he decides to do is to film the movie with a double of the biggest star in Hollywood and then also use a bunch of, like, gorilla-style techniques to uh, sneakily and without the actor's knowledge film him with a bunch of other actors pretending they're in a movie. The other actor is played by Eddie Murphy. Uh, Eddie Murphy plays the dual role of the double who's a dummy and an idiot, and then he plays the biggest actor who's, like, a Scientology nut job so you've got a lot of different things that's satirizing i don't know like i this movie is so well reviewed i think it's one of those movies where you have to know hollywood and know it really well to have a love for it but i just i, I don't i don't care it's often compared to the producers uh, i never find the heart in these characters i never think of this as kind of like an Ed Wood underdog story of the outside Lower level people trying to, you know, make it big. I just always feel like everyone in this movie is a terrible person, and it's terrible people using other terrible people.
0: Yeah, I just remember it being, you know, not not particularly funny, and it was a movie that was rather well reviewed when it came out. And I know that, you know, Hollywood's always kind of had a little bit of a hard on for Hollywood, but like at the same time, and that was an understatement, by the way. Uh, Hollywood loves Hollywood. Yeah. Um, but, uh, like it's, yeah, I don't know. I, I never, I never particularly related the characters in this and I didn't find it to be particularly funny. And that's, you know, when it comes down to it, it's the worst kind of movie for us to review on here. Cause like an Indian in the cupboard has a lot of weird you can talk about the weird. There's nothing particularly weird about this movie. It's just a movie that I, it's a comedy that missed a lot more than it hit for me. So you know... I, I think we can kind of... What, what are you going to say? Uh, we can
1: say uh, I, I generally like some of Steve Martin's writing. I think this is uh, a case where Eddie Murphy plays two characters that are both very two-dimensional. And I don't think he's allowed to be charming in either. So that's like three or four strikes against Eddie Murphy. Uh,
0: you mean Steve... one-dimensional?
1: Yes. Sorry. Um, losing my goddamn Two-dimensional
0: mind. characters would be, would be nice.
1: Two <laughs> one-dimensional characters. Two plus
0: one plus one plus two. Um... Mm. It, two plus two plus one plus one uh, plus two <laughs> is... That's an allusion to our first episode. Yeah.
1: It may or may not ever come out. Who knows? But yeah, I, I think Martin's kind of almost like... I, I don't want to say playing his hits, but it, it feels like a lazy performance from him. I, I, like Heather Graham plays the starlet who sleeps her way up the pecking order. And, you know, that's a one-joke pony that kind of goes over and over. And the way that they tie the Scientology aspect of it to the guerrilla filmmaking aspect of it is fine, but at the end of the day, it feels malicious. It's a movie that its conflict is solved by blackmail. So yeah, it's mean-spirited comedy in a bad Hollywood satire. I don't know. I've watched it like three or four times. It's not for me. I think if you haven't seen it, read someone else's review of it, and if you're intrigued, go watch it, but like, I can't recommend it.
0: Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, watch it if you really like any of the actors in it or whatever but like yeah i mean i I, I don't like this this isn't good yeah so
1: let's move on to a a far more interesting movie in my mind 2001's the score so have you
0: watched this this? i've never i've never seen this no i meant to watch it for this and then i didn't get around to it
1: this is a like list consideration for you um so it's a pretty basic plot uh robert de niro plays a professional jewel thief uh his i guess the guy that like he gets jobs from is played by Marlon Brando and Marlon Brando partners him with an up and coming thief played by Ed Norton and the whole conflict is that Robert De Niro lives in like Vancouver he lives in Canada and he only jewel he only pulls jobs in the US and Ed Norton is this kid from the US and he's like I have this job it's like in the city that you live in it's a big score we should do it and Robert De Niro being like, ah, uh, I, I don't necessarily want to pull a job in my backyard. Things get riskier. Let's take a look at the job. Oh, the things keep going wrong, keep getting riskier. A- and then there's the big heist in the third act. Like, it's a pretty standard heist movie. I just think it's really well executed. Um, Frank Oz, from a directing standpoint, is kind of taking some cues from like, feels like he was like, I'm going to borrow a little, like, a little Michael Mann for this it is like very into the technical aspects of how he safe cracks and very meticulously shows you all of the different steps he takes to like bring his gear with him and unpacking it like that kind of stuff is interesting and in the larger more meta sense i think this is an interesting movie because it was i think supposed to be an anointment for ed norton I mean, you're talking about you have Marlon Brando and Robert De Niro, two of the greatest actors of their generations, and then the young kid they put in it is this up-and-comer. Ed Norton is coming off of American History X and Fight Club, and he's going to be in this movie with these two heavyweights. So I think the Hollywood narrative of it also makes it interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, I definitely want to see it. Yeah, it,
1: it's pretty... It's one of those random blind spots for me. It's pretty fun. Um, it also has some interesting behind-the-scenes stuff, because apparently Marlon Brando was an asshole. Um, and particularly
0: I've never, I've never heard about, about Marlon Brando being difficult to work with.
1: But did you know that he hazed Frank Oz constantly on set calling him Miss Piggy and eventually De Niro had to direct Brando while Oz talked to De Niro through an earpiece because he just quit taking direction from the director.
0: I mean, that sounds like every other experience of working with late Brando.
1: Yeah. But like, you know, he doesn't have a big role in this. I think he's good. Um, some knock against the film, like, Ed Norton is going to the handicapped well again. It's something that he has done over and over in his career. I, I think it works well enough. Uh, the whole thing is, like, to get into the place they're trying to rob, he plays a mentally handicapped janitor. But then he's really this wannabe, suave, dickhead jewel thief. But he's doing a lot of the stuff that he did in Primal Fear. Okay. Yeah, I, I I really like it. Um, the twist of the movie you see coming from a mile away, uh, and it is a little vague in itself how everything resolves. But I would chalk it up to just kind of this is standard heist fare. It's just standard heist fare done really well with some really interesting actors, and that kind of elevates it for
0: me. Huh. Yeah. Cool. No, I want to. I want to watch it. Check it on the list of things that I want to watch. Speaking of movies that you you don't want to watch, um, the Stepford Wives remake. I don't have a lot to say about this. Uh, um, this movie sucks. I don't. I've, I mean, it's, it's, it's bad. It's one where it's like, it, it it's very mid-2000s in the sense that it's like, oh, let's do a remake of, of a pre-existing property. And the studio's like, well... We have the rights to the Stepford Wives. And some studio heads like, yeah, fuck it. People like stuff that happened before, and they made it. Like, there's no modernization of this that's that's particularly interesting. There's nothing particularly compelling about it. The Stepford Wives, you know, the original Stepford Wives from a, like, conceptual standpoint, you know, kind of getting into the, uh, I guess, uh, shall we say parallel thoughts of the nuclear of people living in small communities and the nuclear family and that sort of thing is still sort of there on a baseline but it's just not good it's this it's the story of um a person who moves to a new town the person is played by matthew broderick and uh nicole kidman is his wife i believe yeah and uh they gradually learn that the women of the town have all been replaced with robots. That's the movie. I remember John Lovitz, John Lovitz draws a face on his belly at one point and makes his belly button talk. And that was the best scene in the movie.
1: (laughs) Oh, so I know this is another one where like production was very difficult. Um, That's the thing. Oz doesn't get along with some people. And apparently every single person in this movie he fought with openly. And then, uh, so he has himself said that like this movie was kind of the reason it's bad is his fault. He has blamed himself for being too interested in the producer's investment and trying to protect their money. But this was a movie that was done. Uh, bombed at test screenings. They spent like a shit ton of money to do a ton of reshoots, but the reshoots created plot holes and really fucked up the pacing. Um, And from what I had looked into it, it originally had a much more like Looney Tunes style comedy to it. And apparently they just pulled a lot of that stuff out. And it was stuff that he had worked on from a visual standpoint to make really interesting special effects with them. And, they just kind of, like, ripped all that shit out. So this was, this was kind of a failed venture before it opened.
0: Yeah, well, it seems like it's a movie with, with I won't necessarily say studio interference fully, because this is the kind of project that, that studios create. This isn't the kind of thing that anyone really wanted to make. But, like, it, at the same time, yeah, I think that it's, uh, it's definitely a movie where, um, you know, test audiences and, and scared producers led to probably a worse product than what would have originally come out. But at least we have the scene with John Lovitz making his belly button talk.
1: Yeah, it's a weird one. It's also weird that he did this coming off of arguably like his most financially successful movie in the score. And then this thing like was a huge bomb. It, it, I think it was an odd choice. He takes, I'll give him credit. He takes a lot of like ownership over the fault of the movie. But yeah, it's bad. I wish I had more to say about well, it. it. It's like, a, I, I, I hated it when I watched it as a kid. I went back and watched a couple scenes. It's still bad.
0: Yeah. Bad movie. Bad movie. Well, I, I wouldn't call it death in a movie. Oh, Or I would.
1: Oh, God. I, I would. If I didn't have the sound guard up, you would hear the thump of my head hitting the microphone. Um, yeah. it's okay we're at the end uh, 2007 Death at a Funeral is his next movie a lot of people are familiar with this through either watching the original or the remake uh, but basically it is a British family has to solve a myriad of issues that come up during the wake of ma- the main guy's father but the family patriarch
0: this is the original and not the remake for the record yes
1: he directed the original the, the British film this is a weird thing it, it's a farce But we've said before in this podcast that farces generally don't translate well
0: onto film. Yes, they actually, in my opinion, generally translate very poorly.
1: And he has never done a direct farce, but he has worked enough in the comedy genre that I think he would be adept at transferring it my main problem is that like this is a farce that's real light on the farce elements and i think that holds down some of the pacing of this movie because it is like a purely british comedy they have their tone and their style and their pacing um it's sometimes like its own little sub genre of comedy and for me uh i I watched this movie right around the time it came out because it was a big indie sleeper hit that people talked about um I-, I liked it then. Rewatching it now, I honestly didn't It didn't hold up as well as I had remembered. I had remembered really liking this, and this was kind of a letdown. You know, you've got uh, Matthew McFadden, who's an actor that I like being the lead character, but I don't think he's as suitable to comedy. Like, I mean, he is, he is a guy that you go to get to period dramas, and putting him in this didn't work so well. Um, the rest of the supporting cast is a myriad of that guys. Most notably, you've got Alan Tudyk, who's the drugged boyfriend. He's pretty funny, but like, you know, he's the broadest character. Um, And then you've got Peter Dinklage as the American dwarf that the father secretly had a gay relationship with. Mild spoiler there. But Peter Dinklage isn't really given anything funny to do. It's just a movie that, like, it lacks the buoyancy that you need for it to be a true farce. And I think as just a standard British comedy, it's kind of lacking in the jokes because it gets marred down in the family
0: drama. What do you remember about this film, Nick? No, I mean, I, I think you're somewhat on on par there. I think that this one, for me... So, I watched this movie for the first time um, when I was at Blockbuster. I was working at Blockbuster when this movie came out on, uh, on DVD. And I remember, you know, I would chat with the customers a lot when I was at Blockbuster. I was that fucking employee and uh, hey i loved that employee at my local block i was very big on finding what people liked and what they didn't you know and i wanted to have recommendations ready for people and that sort of thing and with this movie everyone was going apeshit over this thing anybody who rented this said it was the funniest movie ever and i remember you know renting it and, and for myself and taking it home and being like yeah it's okay like it's it's not a bad movie it's it's an entertaining comedy. It's a it's a perfectly fine way to spend ninety minutes. I've seen a lot. I wouldn't call it a farce. I wouldn't. I don't think nearly enough Doris slammed for it to be a farce. Um, I think that it's a, you know a relatively dry British comedy with some some good humor in it here and there. I never. Th- I don't think it ever really picks up the momentum that it needs um, to to really move any fences in terms of uh, you know overall comedy yeah, it just doesn't zing um, it, it doesn't have a zip it, it, to it it never the pace is never there for it but there are some good jokes and some nice moments and the characters are grounded enough where I found it to be enjoyable for what it was uh, I consider this kind of an enjoyable but forgettable movie but it was more annoying because people were just so apeshit over this movie when it came out And I was just like, yeah, it's, you know, I recommended it. And that's how I used to recommend it to people after I watched it. Normally I go, this movie's really good. In this case, I'd be like, people really seem to like this. And that's where I left it.
1: Also, since we're both not necessarily negative on it, but just a little like kind of down on it. I feel like there were a couple indie British comedies, dry British comedies around this time in like the mid 2000s that crossed over with some notoriety. Where would you kind of rank this? Like, uh, I was trying to think of. It reminded me of like Saving Grace, which is a movie that I really love, or uh, Waking Never Ned Divine.
0: Waking Ned Divine, Irish. Oh, uh,
1: British Irish. I'm I'm gonna lump those together for this thing. Um, <laughs> Rude. I know. Rude. I know. We lost our, our only Irish listener. Um, but I, I don't know. We could we could have a big
0: following there. You don't know.
1: I don't know. Where where would you put this in, in that like I, I feel like this is often propped up as the pinnacle of that time of the comedies that crossed over and rewatching well, it, I was like I, I think I isn't. like the other ones better.
0: It isn't because I think like well, I would think around this time that you would go with like the early Edgar Wrights like you know where like Shaun of the Dead and uh, and Hot Fuzz are both are both right around when this came out.
1: I guess I was going more for like the drier British comedy going over though those movies are certainly dry in some aspects
0: um I would say they're. I would say they're they were dry in comparison to the comedy that I was consuming in that era um and I would I like I, I watched this and was you know and I definitely related it to the you know the at your Right movies and I would put it below them uh, I think Obviously, it has Um, some of the same
1: comedy. It's just like the delivery never lands. It's like I recognize that there's a joke here, and you've set up the structure of the joke, but it just never hits. I know maybe it's one of those lost in translation things that we sometimes talk about on this. Um,
0: But I don't think that I don't think that's the case here. I think that I think that most of the humor within this movie, I get it. it. It's just that it's not like this movie to me is a movie that like. When people would describe this as a as a laugh riot, I think they're over exaggerating. Yeah, there
1: aren't enough cause jokes. Cause it's not.
0: Cause it's not. And yeah, I mean, it's you know, it, it, overall, like, I think it's I think it's perfectly fine. Uh, like Waking That Divine was a movie where I think a lot of the jokes are lost in translation. This, I don't think that's the case. I think it's just not quite as. I I don't find it as funny as people did when it came out and I'd be curious if those same people were to rewatch it now what their thoughts would be yeah
1: because honestly I was one of them I, I I thought it was really funny when I first saw it and now it just kind of lost something and maybe that's just because I've been exposed to more not only British films but drier British comedies so yeah yeah. that's it it was a pretty big success though like we're talking 9 million budget it made uh 40 47 million like so yeah. a- another nice solid hit but then Frank Oz really hasn't done a lot. So since then, that's his last narrative feature that he's directed. He's done two documentaries. One is literally, uh, it's called Muppet Guys Talking, Secrets Behind the Show The Whole World Watched, which is way too long of a title. Um, But I watched the trailer and I tried to find a couple like clips. I found more interviews of him talking about it. It's literally like a documentary where they take five of the original Muppet performers and it's just them sitting around a room telling stories, like it is that kind of bare bones, just people talking around a table documentary.
0: Yeah, fuck it. A
1: convo doc, as you will.
0: It, it, uh, it. I'm sure something like that has its audience.
1: Absolutely. Uh, apparently, like you can only get it by going to that website and paying for it on that website. And I was like, I'm
0: not for this. I'm not gonna do not that. Not for this. Yeah.
1: Uh, but the other one is uh, coming out this year sometime. Who knows. Uh, but it's called in and of itself uh, from what i could tell about it it's actually a uh i don't know if it's filming of a stage play that oz directed or if it's more of an adapted film of a stage play but it's basically around a um he calls himself a storyteller and conceptual magician so i i think it's kind of a filmed magic show
0: oh well
1: but I'm it's not classified watch that. as a documentary so maybe it's like a little bit more than just like you know watching david copperfield on film or something um
0: but that's supposed if to come pulling pulling muppets if he's pulling muppets out of hats i might fuck with it but otherwise i'm probably not gonna watch it
1: <laughs> but that but, shows he still he like he directed the stage production that i think ran off broadway and then directed a film or translated it somehow to film version. So like the man's still working, but he's also, uh, he's 77 years old right now. Like, you know, he can kind of float off of just giving interviews about his film career, but particularly the Muppets and all of his star Wars residuals for being Yoda. He's fine.
0: I'll say, I, I'll say this. I, you know, going through this retrospective of, of Frank Oz's career, man, what a good fucking career. Uh-huh. Like, even there's there's some in there that are weird. There's some in there that I don't like. I don't give a shit. The dude has created a, a solid set of good movies. There's a decent amount of movies in here that have a good amount of rewatchability. A lot of them are remembered. Like, he had a very strong career in film.
1: And he dabbled across multiple different genres. And really with, uh, you know, him being a puppeteer, he did work very hard on new visual effects and you know it's not like he was a cgi lucas head like or robert zemeckis obsessed with new technology but he certainly did his work on that honestly it reminded me a little bit about like joe johnston being like an ilm nerd like this is someone that cares for his craft a lot
0: yeah for sure so let's talk about the, the the movie awards or whatever we do at the end of this thing
1: yeah so um I'm going to go ahead and say that my best is the one that the reason that I had picked him is Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. It remains my favorite. I think it has incredible rewatchability. Um, It's only slightly ahead of maybe a couple of these other movies, but it's just always had a fun place in my heart.
0: Yeah, I would say, you know, for for me, it's definitely What About Bob. What About Bob still my favorite. Um, But there's a lot of good movies in here for sure.
1: Least favorite is a little tougher for me. I'm going to go ahead and say Stepford Wives. I feel like that's a little bit of a cop-out because I haven't seen it in so long, but I mean, there's a certain point where like, if you're younger and you see a movie and you recognize how bad it is, that means the movie's probably real bad. So yeah, Stepford Wives, worst movie.
0: Ordinarily, I like to pick one different than you because, um, you know, it splits things up a little bit more and makes us uh, more individual people. That said, The Stefford Wives is objectively the worst movie on this list by quite a lot. So, no, Stefford Wives is the answer. That movie sucks. Hidden Gem
1: is difficult for
0: me. Oh,
1: do you mind going first on this one?
0: Yeah, um... Sure. There's a lot of movies that could be qualified as hidden gems here. Um, I'm gonna say, and I think it's solely because I, earlier in it, I said it was one of the best movie musicals ever put on film. Is Little Shop of Horrors? While that movie definitely still, I you know in the in the theater community is still very well known. I would imagine there's a decent amount of people that that weren't really involved in the theater world that probably don't know about that movie. So I don't know if I'm like going into a incorrect direction there or not but i would say little shop of ours is a must see for anyone regardless of how they feel about musicals
1: no honestly i think it's a great pick um i i know i didn't mention this but have you heard anything about apparently i was talking to our good buddy rich and he told me that they have recently released a new version of it remastered but including the original ending that mirrors the broadway ending
0: Ooh.
1: I know. something. No, uh, when I watch that. I mean, little spoiler alert, skip ahead for one minute if you want, but the Broadway musical ends with everyone dying and the plant taking over the world, and a lot of times they will like drop, you know, vines down from the ceiling onto the audience and stuff as like a final ooh at the very end of it, um, and that was the original ending that they had filmed, and test audiences hated it, and so they had to go back and refilm the current ending, which has you know, a happier ending. Uh, I, I, it was supposedly lost forever in a fire, but like they found a VHS black and white version of it. And then the producer sued that release and was like, no guys, it's like, it's in my basement. I have a color copy of it. Like if you're going to put it out, you're going to put it out with me. And so they re-released it with the new alternative ending. Huh? Something that honestly, like if it went on sale on Amazon, I might pick up. I liked the movie that much.
0: It makes sense that test audiences would um, would not like the original ending because the public sucks.
1: Frank Oz had an interesting quote about it. He said, in the theater when everyone dies, at the end they still get to come out for a curtain call and get a bow. And so the audience still gets to be with them. But in a movie, if they're dead, they're dead. And he said that that was like a very informative learning tool for him. I, I just thought that was like a nice little observation.
0: That's a... That's a way more nuanced take than anything I was going to say. So, fuck, that's pretty good. Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> since you did that, I mean, that could certainly be my hidden gem. Uh, I'll say In and Out only because it was a very uh, informational, informative, and entertaining movie for me as a kid. Looking back on it through the current climate, uh, look, it, it's going to be uh, uncomfortable to some people. I think taking it just for what it was trying to do. And as a product of its time, it, it's worth a watch. I also think, you know, it's still got some good jokes in it, and it's still entertaining with some great performances.
0: Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, that was a fun. That was a fun trip down uh, that career. Yeah, Frank Oz. Join Frank us Oz. next. Yeah, join us next week for when we go into the career of uh, the Wizard of Oz, the actual Wizard, not the director of the Wizard of Oz, the Wizard. Of Oz. But not
1: the Wizard of Not the Wiz. The Wizard of Oz.
0: No, the Wizard of Oz.
1: Not Oz the Great and Powerful.
0: No, no, like the Wizard. The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard. The Wiz. Uh, the, the the Fred Savage Nintendo movie. The Wiz.
1: I was thinking about the failed Sydney Lumet musical.
0: No, no, the... the, the, the no, that's the Wizard. No, that's the, the Wiz. Wizard. That's the, no, the Wizard. The Wizard's the Fred Savage one. Yes. That's, that's the, that's the movie. That's what, that, not the director of that. Although I would be curious to see who directed that. Maybe we will talk about that person.
1: Well, this has been our episode of Wiz on First. Um, I'm Zachary D'Antonio.
0: I'm Wiz. I'm Nick. Nick. Nick DiRiso. Uh, Wiz. Wiz DiRiso.
1: Hey, you can find us on uh, Twitter and Letterboxd at Zach D'Antonio.
0: You cannot find me on Twitter. Uh, you you might be able to find me on Letterbox.
1: Yeah, uh, check us out next week. Um, until then, stay safe and uh, hopefully, you know what? Go watch one of these movies. It'll bring you some. It'll bring you a little bit of reprieve, a little bit of joy from all the terribleness.
0: Or watch all of them. Record your own podcast and title it a career in film. Oh wait, don't do that. That'd be bad.